Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. This week, I went to my barber and got my hair cut. He only takes cash, so I reached into my wallet and I paid him for his excellent work. Then I, I went to Vaughn's. I had to pick up a few groceries for us and I gave them money and they gave me the food that I had needed. It, if you think about any economy, it really works in that way. It works based on exchange. You give somebody something, usually some mon something monetary, and they give you a good or a service in return. And that's the way that economies have worked since the dawn of creation, since the beginning of time. They, they've been exchange-based economies. Even in an agrarian culture, we saw people exchanging one thing for another. And in many ways, the ancients rolled that same idea into the way that they interacted with the gods. I mean, the ancients had a god for almost everything. They had a, a crop god and a rain god and a fertility god and a money god and, and a god for almost everything. And what you would do is you would take something, a, a crop or a vine or an animal, and you would exchange it. Uh, you'd kill the animal and offer the blood. You, you would wave the crop or you would give the gods the crop. And here's the thing. It was all based on exchange. You give the gods what they want and they'll give you what you really want. It was the way that things worked. And in fact, one of the goals of religion in the ancient world was to keep the gods happy. Uh, there was this conviction that the gods are angry uh, temperamental, emotional, spontaneous, rash, and usually you were on their bad side. I mean, have you ever had a friend where you always wondered if you were going to say something that just ticked them off, or you knew that you had said something that ticked them off and you didn't know what it was? I mean, think of interacting that way with the gods. And in so many ways, that was the way that the ancients lived. If it wasn't raining enough, the gods were upset. If they couldn't get pregnant, the gods were angry. And so you had to go and you had to find the right priest and you had to sacrifice to the right god so that you could make the exchange, right? You give them what they want and eventually they'll give you what you really want. That's the operating system behind not only most economies, but most religions. Now, here's what I want you to think about. As a follower of Jesus, if that's who you claim to be today, have we just replaced faith with other forms of sacrifice, whether it was crops or animals? I mean, here's, the que here's my question. Do we exchange faith with God? Like, we give God faith and he gives us what we really want? Is that the way this works? Is that the, the system that we're in? I want you to hold that question because we're gonna talk about the answer to it during our time in Daniel chapter three. 
today. So let me catch you up in the story. Uh, it was, the year was 605 BC. King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and began to exile the people of Jerusalem. And in that first wave in 605, he took some of the youngest and brightest. And in that group was Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And they were chosen to be a part of the king's court, uh, to be educated in Babylon, Babylonian religion and culture and language and mathematics and sciences and sorcery and magic. And Daniel and his friends, they flourished in that situation. They were far from home, but because of that, they serve as a great guide for us, I think, in our current cultural moment. It's why we're calling this series Distance Learning, because we're going to learn from Daniel and his friends what it looks like to flourish in exile. Last week, we saw Daniel interpret a dream for King Nebuchadnezzar. I don't know if you remember, but the dream was of a, of a, of a large statue, and each portion of his body represented a different empire in a different epoch, a different season. Well, it seems as though that maybe that image got stuck in King Nebuchadnezzar's head and he decided to build a huge statue of himself. He, he built a 90-foot statue of himself, like you do when you're the king, right? And so he required that all the people of Babylon bow down and worship this statue. Well, not surprisingly, Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, they refuse to bow down. And here's what happens. Verse 12 of Daniel chapter 3. They said this, There are certain Jews who you, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, these are his um, governing officials, who you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. I mean, I love the way that they describe Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's response. They pay no attention to you. Uh, they're not loud and defiant. They're not virtue signaling by sort of saying, here's all the great things that we're doing to stay true to Yahweh. They're quietly devoted. Um, by the way, um, it's really a mouthful to say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over and over and over again. We're going to give them a celebrity triplet name, Shadmigo, to summarize all three of them. But I love the way that these men respond to the king. It says they paid no attention to him. They're not loud and defiant. They're not virtue signaling, going, look how great we are. No, they're just quietly devoted. And listen to the way that the passage continues in verse 13. It says this, Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Like, 
is this word that I've heard true? You're not bowing down to the massive 90-foot golden image I've made of me? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God? Nebuchadnezzar asked. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? See, Nebuchadnezzar has obviously forgotten the God who reveals dreams. The God who he said is the God above all gods at the end of the last chapter. And in the midst of all of this, we see Shadmigo is going to make this stand. Uh, they're going to uh, take a stand of, of faith. In fact, in fact, I believe that they give one of the best pictures of faith in the entire Bible. Listen to what they say next. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Don't you love this? It, it looks like Jesus, when he's questioned by Pilate and remains silent. If this be so, verse 17, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Did you catch those three things that they said? Our God is able. That is a posture of faith. Our God is able. He can do whatever he wants. I'm reminded of the angel that visits Mary to tell her that she's pregnant while she's a virgin. And he says in Luke chapter 1, verse 37, nothing is impossible for God. Uh, that's what uh, Shadmigo say. Nothing is impossible for our God. Their second claim, you can see it right there. He will deliver us. He's going to come through. This is a posture of faith. God is going to act on our behalf. But then you look at the beginning of verse 18. But if not, but if not, regardless of whether he comes through in the way that we want him to or not, we are going to stay faithful to this God. And you probably know the story. They're thrown into the fiery furnace and they're not burned. God, God saves them. God heals them. God protects them in the midst of the fire. So here's my question. What are we supposed to do with the story? Uh, are we supposed to read the story and say, well, if we have enough faith, then God will protect us from the fire. I mean, is this the age-old religious exchange that we've seen since the beginning of time? You give God what he really wants, which now we can just say is faith, and he'll give you what you really want, which is, well, prosperity, health, all those good things that we really long for in life. I mean, is this like the exchange that I had with my barber <laughs> or the exchange that I had at Vaughn's? Just we're replacing money with faith. I mean, that's the way you hear some people talk about faith, isn't it? If you have enough faith, you'll be rich. If you have enough faith, you'll be healed. If you have enough faith, you'll 
be promoted. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. That doesn't align with reality, does it? It doesn't always work out that way. In fact, did you know that that this story is included in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of faith? Listen to what the author of Hebrews says. He's talking about people who, by faith, conquered kingdoms, starting in verse 33, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, which is a reference to Daniel chapter 6, quenched the power of the fire. This is a reference to this story. Escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness and became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. I mean, don't you love this? That by faith, people saw God do the miraculous on their behalf. And we all go, well, that's the story of faith that I want. God, if I give you my faith, then you give me these things, right? That's the way it works. The only problem with that is if you keep reading in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 36, it says this, by faith, Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. By faith, they quenched the power of the fire. By faith, they were sawn in two. I mean, wouldn't you love it if we could make an equation out of it and say, well, this is the way. Let me give you three steps today to have the kind of faith that will save you from the fire. Boom, boom, boom. Wouldn't you love it if it were an equation like that? The problem is, that's not the way it works. And the reality is, is that faith is not some sort of exchange with God where you give God faith and then he gives you what you really want. I mean, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego didn't know which side of, but if not, in verse 18, they were going to fall on. They, They knew God could. That's faith. They knew God could. They didn't know if God would. They didn't know if he would. They didn't know the outcome. But they decided to live obediently. And see, here's what I want you to write down. This is going to shape our time today. And this is, this is the truth that we see in Daniel chapter 3. It's that faith is a posture of surrender. It's not a position of control. Faith is a posture of surrender. It's not a position of control. And we see this even in Abraham, the great father of faith, as the author of Hebrews writes about him earlier in that chapter. He writes this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing, not knowing where he was going. This is a great picture of faith as a posture of surrender, not a position of control. See, faith is not a way to get something from God. Faith is a way to walk with God. Faith is a way to walk with God that heals our soul, that leads to wholeness, and that positions us to receive abundant life from God. See, instead of faith being the way that we acquire from God something we really desire, Faith is the recognition that God is our ultimate treasure. I mean, you might think of it like this. Faith is not 
stepping into the driver's seat of the car and now getting to hold the wheel and control God to do whatever we want him to do. That's not the way that faith works. No, no, faith is actually getting in the back seat of the car. <laughs> and faith is saying to Jesus, as a modern day poet once said, Jesus, you take the wheel. <laughs> Can I be honest though for a second? It feels like Jesus is driving crazy these days, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like he's, he's taking the turns a little bit fast. He's not driving like my grandmother who drives really, really slow. I mean, he has the pedal to the metal. And it can feel a little bit uncertain. It can feel a little bit chaotic. And if that's where you're at today, I just want to say, I'm with you and I get it. But here's what I know about our driver. He's really, really good. He's really, really loving. He has got you. And he's got great insurance in case he crashes. <laughs> he's got you. He's got you. But that's why this posture of surrender is so difficult. Because we aren't in control. As Rich Mullins, the great singer-songwriter, put it, surrender don't come natural to me. I'd rather fight you for what I don't really want than to take what you give that I need. And this, this is the furnace that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego invite us to step into with them, choosing surrender over control. But if not, we will continue to be faithful. See, this, friends, is not a story about escaping the furnace. It's a blueprint for facing it, for encountering it, and for living faithfully in it. And today, in this passage, we're briefly going to look at something that we reject, something we embrace, and something we remember when it comes to surrendering to God rather than controlling Him. So first, something we reject. Look back at verses 4 through 6 with me. Here's what it says. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you're to fall down and worship the golden image that the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever doesn't fall and worship shall be immediately cast into a burning, fiery furnace. We already know that Shadmigo are unwilling to bow. They're, they're unwilling to bow the knee. And here's the reason why. They have a covenant with Yahweh. They have a covenant with God. And their covenant in the Ten Commandments was really clear. It's commandment number two. It says this, You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything like in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, and I'm a jealous God. Now, I would say that a 90-foot golden statue qualifies as a carved image. And Shadmigo say, we, can't, we cannot bow down. Why? Why? Well, for them, their faith is not transactional. We give God what he wants, he gives us what we want. It's, it's relational. 
See, in this sense, faith is far more like a marriage covenant than it is like a business deal. See, a marriage covenant, when we make those vows, we vow to forsake all others. And the Hebrew people have done that same thing in covenant with their God, Yahweh. In fact, in the scriptures, there's an entire prophetic book about this picture of God as a husband and Israel as an unfaithful bride. It's the book of Hosea. But in it, we see this echo of the reality that God is a a jealous God. God is jealous for the affection of his people. God doesn't arbitrarily spew his love into an endless ethereal unknown. No, he directs it to people. He, He directs it to you and I. See, the difference between Yahweh and the other lowercase g gods was that Yahweh actually cared about his people. Those other lowercase g gods just wanted things from their people. So Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't care if people genuinely worship him. He just cares if they go through the, mo- they go through the motions to bow. But your God doesn't feel that way. He's not interested in the motions. He's interested in your heart and he wants your whole heart. According to Exodus, he's a jealous God. I've heard some people be turned off by that, resistant to it. But can I suggest to you that we wouldn't want a God who felt any other way about us? We wouldn't want a God, just like we wouldn't want a spouse, who would say, eh, go ahead, do whatever you want, with whomever you want, whenever you want, as long as you come back and give me some worship also. No, no, no. God's interested in our devotion. So what do we reject? I'd invite you to write this down. We reject idolatry and we worship wholeheartedly. We reject idolatry and worship wholeheartedly. So what does that look like today? What does it look like to be people who worship wholeheartedly? I think we have to confront our idolatry problem. Tim Keller The great pastor and author captured it well when he said this, an idol is any created thing we look to in order to give us meaning, hope, and happiness that only God himself can give. And he adds on, it will eventually fail to deliver and break our hearts. See, the ancients were just a little bit more explicit. (laughs) You know, they said, well, let's worship money and let's call our God mammon or let's worship love and sexuality and let's call our God Aphrodite or let's worship entertainment and call our God Dionysus. See, in all of our modern sophistications, we would say, well, we don't have those lowercase g gods anymore. We've done away with that. I would actually say we just don't explicitly name them. We still Our hearts are still drawn to those things. I mean, would you argue in our culture that we don't still worship the goddesses of sex and of money and of entertainment and of success or of power or politics? I mean, those gods are alive and well. And sometimes they're even alive and well in me. What about you? See, I think... Shadmigo give us this picture of what it looks like to search our heart and to be fully and wholeheartedly devoted to God. So what might that look like today for you? I think you could ask yourself some questions. 
Let me just throw a few of them out and you can process them later on. What most worries you? And what are the solutions that you dream about? See, because what we're worried about is probably what we have affection for and, and it might be an idol. Where do you turn when you're worried? Where do you turn when you're bored? What do you spend money on? What do you want to talk about most? What are your strongest hopes and your deepest desires? As you process through those, some of them might show that there's an idol that's taken place on the throne of your heart. And I kind of just encourage you as a as one of your pastors to dethrone those idols. One of the ways we do that is by worshiping the true God, coming before him, pouring out a heart, remembering that he's good, remembering that he loves us, giving him our affection, feeding our affection for him, and, and killing those other idols that pop up in our soul. See, maybe it's just as much about what we receive, the overtures of love from our Father, as it is what we reject, idolatry. So let's look at the second thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego teach us about facing the fire, not, not escaping it. So at this part of the scene, we're going to jump to verse 24. They are in the fiery furnace and listen to what the scriptures say. Verse 24, then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, did we not cast three men bound into the fire? And they said to the king, True, O king, you're right. That's what we did. Verse 25. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. They're not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. There was another in the fire. Now, most biblical scholars think that this is what's called a Christophany. Would you say that with me? Christophany. It's um, uh, an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. It's Jesus stepping onto the scene before he's covered in flesh and bone. Christophany. But I think there's a picture of something bigger and something even deeper going on here. I think this is a picture not just of what happened with Shadmigo, but it's a picture of what happens in our life. That in the midst of the furnace, in the midst of the fire, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of those situations that we would rather not encounter, God is with us. Jesus shows up. And we remember, we are, if we're going to live by faith that, that is embodied in surrender, we have got to reject idolatry and worship wholeheartedly. The second thing we have to do is we have to embrace. We have to embrace God's presence amidst life's pain. And I don't know about you, but I've sensed God's pleasure most when life goes great. But I've sensed God's presence most in my deepest pain, in those moments where I just wonder what's going on and why did this turn out the way that it did? I sense God's arm around me. What about you? 
In fact, in fact, the Apostle Paul will write this in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10. He says that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. That there's a way, Paul's saying, that Jesus encounters us and meets us and that we experience him or have koinonia with him, fellowship with him in the middle of our sufferings. It reminds me of this book I read a while back entitled Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrandt, who was a pastor and he was in prison for 14 years under uh, the communist rule in Russia. Listen to what he writes from prison. Here's what he says. There was once a fiddler who played so beautifully that everybody danced. A deaf man could not hear the music and considered them all insane. Those who are with Jesus in suffering hear this music to which other men are deaf. They dance and do not care that they are considered insane. It may seem like a peace that surpasses understanding or an inexpressible joy. Another in the fire. So, how do we experience this presence of God? What, what does this look like? Can I give you just three things that I'd invite you to do when you find yourself in life's furnace? Here's number one. Here's number one. Cry out honestly to God. Express your heart honestly to him. Let the Psalms give language to the pain in your soul. That's one of the reasons we have that prayer book in our Bible. Remember, remember, desperate prayers are a sign of spiritual health, not deficiency. Cry out to God. Express your true self. Express your true heart. Second, expect that God will show up. Expect it. In fact, become a detective to see where God is on the move and how he's meeting you in the midst of life's pain. After all, he says that he's close to the broken Hearted. It might be encouragement from a friend, a text message or a note. It might be something you read in the scriptures. It might be a lot of things. Be a detective. Find out how God is showing up. And third, I want to call on you. When you find yourself in the furnace to remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. Remember the cross. Remember that Jesus has given his life for you because he loves you and he cares for you and he has been faithful to you. And as you remember his faithfulness, praise because he inhabits the praises of his people. See, God will not always prevent you from walking through pain, but he will always be present with you as you walk through it. There will be another in the fire. So remember, we've looked at something that we reject, idolatry. Something that we embrace, God's presence. And this is all under the banner of faith being a posture of surrender, not a position of control. There's one last thing that I want to look at together today in Daniel chapter 3, verses 27 through 28. Here's what we see. And the satraps and the prefects and the governors and the king's counselors gathered together and they saw that the fire had not any power over the bodies of those men. 
The hair on their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. And he set aside the king's command and yield, they set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any God except their own. I love that line. The fire had no power over their bodies because they trusted in their God. I love this story, but it stirs up all sorts of questions in me. <laughs> like, yeah, but not everybody's story ends that way. I think of Perpetua in 203. She was a wealthy convert to Christianity in Carthage, and she was told to recant or else she would be killed for her faith. She refused to do that. She was put into an arena, torn apart by wild animals, and eventually killed by the sword. I think of John Huss in 1415, who was burned at the stake for quote-unquote heresy against the Catholic Church, but he could be heard singing psalms as his body burned. I think of Michael Sattler, who in 1525 had his tongue cut out so he couldn't testify about Jesus, but he had established with his brothers a signal with them. He would put two fingers in the air while he was being burned to tell them, you can endure this too. And in 1525, while he was being burned, held two fingers up as a declaration to his friends. I think of William Tyndale, largely, largely responsible for the English version of the Bible that you probably are holding and reading this story out of. In 1536, burned at the stake because of his work in translating. What do we do with their stories? Uh, why didn't it turn out the, the way that they wanted? Why, why didn't the exchange of faith work like it did for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I mean, on the surface, it looks like it didn't, right? But what if we take Jesus's words a, a little bit more seriously when he said in John chapter 11, verses 25 through 26, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. See, here's what we've got to remember, and I'd invite you to write this down. We have to remember that temporal defeat will eventually give way to eternal destiny. Temporal defeat will eventually give way to eternal destiny. For followers of Jesus, suffering is never the end of the story. Fire is never the end, and death is never the end. Resurrection and life eternal are the end. See, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego experience in a temporal way what followers of Jesus will experience in an eternal way. And my guess is there's some areas of your life that you have to remember that in today, whether it's in the chaos of COVID, that maybe that has created a furnace for you, um, in relationships, in businesses, in schooling, in distance learning. I don't know what furnace you're in today, but I want to remind you that temporal defeat will always eventually give way to eternal destiny. Life with Jesus.
I'm reminded of a story that I told, I think about a year ago. It was of an interviewer who was interviewing the Flying Rodleys. They were a trapeze troupe from South Africa. And he sat down and he interviewed them and he interviewed the flyer. This is the person that flies from one bar to the next and is caught by another trapeze artist in midair. And he asks him, well, what do you do? What do you need to do as a flyer? And the man responds, oh, that's easy. Actually, you do nothing. In fact, if you try to grab for your catcher, you ruin everything. You simply have to wait as you fly through the air. You have to wait and you have to trust the catcher. He went on to say this, and I quote, The worst thing the flyer can do is try to catch the catcher. He must wait to be caught. I don't know about you, but I want to live trusting the catcher. This last year has been a challenge for me, for my family, for so many of my friends and the people that I walk in community with. And I don't know, I I picture myself trying to reach out and trying to catch God in the midst of all that's been going on. And I wonder what, what it would look like to view faith as a posture of surrender rather than a position of control. To say, God, we are flying through the air and it feels chaotic and it feels uncertain and it feels out of control, but I will wait on you to catch me. I'll wait on you to catch me. I don't know if I'm preaching to anybody else today, but I know I'm preaching to myself. And so it's in surrender and faith that life gains the beauty and the power that it was always designed to have. I mean, ironically, we think if we lose control, we lose influence and we lose joy and we lose happiness, but it's actually the exact opposite. It's in trying to grasp for control that we lose the things that are most dear to us in life. So as we close our time together today, I just want to read a passage out of 1 Peter to you. It's written to, he he says it's written to elect exiles, uh, people like you and I who are journeying with Jesus in a land that's far from home. Starting in chapter 1, verse 6, and just let this wash over you. Listen to what Peter wrote. He said this. He said, in this, referring back to the living hope we have through Jesus' resurrection, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, maybe COVID, (laughs) so that the tested genuineness of your faith might be more precious than that of gold. Though it perishes, it is tested by fire. And that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory." Obtaining the outcome or the the telos in the Greek, the goal, the purpose. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation or the, the healing of your souls. The outcome or the goal of your faith, the healing, the restoration or the health of your deepest self. Yeah, surrender to his love leads us to life from above. 
So let's be those kind of people, Emmanuel Faith. Let's be the kind of people who, just like Mercy Me wrote, I know you're able and I know you can. Save through the fire with your mighty hand. But even if you don't, my hope is you alone. Did you write that down? Even if you don't, my hope is you alone. Did you say that back to your heavenly father today? See, for some of you, you're going, man, we are in the furnace and God, I need to know your presence and God, I need to choose to worship and God, I need to remember eternal destinies in you. For some of you, maybe you've never made a commitment to Jesus. I want to invite you today to to give your life to him, to surrender to him in faith and trust him. It's not a way to control him. It's a way to live with him, seeing him as the greatest treasure. Give your life to him. And maybe you're on the outside looking in a little bit and you're not experiencing quite as much as maybe some of the people in your life. Would you pray? Pray for the people who may feel like they're in the furnace today. Let's pray together as we close our time. Father, thank you for being a God who's worthy of worship and who's with us in the furnace and who has redeemed us, promised us resurrection and life eternal. And Lord, in the midst of all that's going on in our world right now, in our lives right now, I pray that we would be the kind of people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that regardless of what faces us, we know who's for us, and that our faith would be grounded in you as our God. It's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.